Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 26, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Yeah, there's like five words in that. Did I count that right? Yeah, PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Yeah, that's five words. All right. My name is Rick. I'm author of the newly released book, Spiritual Grit, and a couple years ago, the the book called The Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of a foundational exploration of what does it look like to live your life orbiting around Jesus all the time, not because you're trying harder, but because it just naturally happens. How, how, how does that naturally happen? And I'm the editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. Today we're concluding our little run of episodes on the tough side of Jesus. So what we're doing here is exploring kind of this sort of dichotomous tension between how shockingly tender Jesus is and how shockingly tough he is, and trying to put our arms around all of Jesus, not just the parts that we like or relate to. So we're spending the month of June uh, exploring the, the tough side of Jesus, and in July we'll explore what I would call a shocking tenderness. And in July we'll make the case that as much as people were offended by many of the things Jesus said and did, there was more offense about his tenderness than about his toughness. So that's a little teaser for July. You know, and a few months ago, we published the book The Unreasonable Jesus by Thomas Christensen, and I just want to put a plug out there for this book, The Unreasonable Jesus. It's it's a good follow-up to this June series of uh, explorations of the tough side of Jesus. So we'll put a link to The Unreasonable Jesus on our podcast page. You can, again, find that at paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You can find a link there. And The Unreasonable Jesus really is an exploration of all the ways that Jesus kind of frustrates us and doesn't doesn't act or say things the way we think he does in our common understanding of him, and it fits really well with what we're doing now. So today we're going to tackle something that belies the popular conceptions of Jesus as the ultimate nice guy. If we pay attention to everything Jesus said and did, not just the easy or popular or well-known aspects of him, we find a man who was... Um, well, I guess the best way to say it is that he was irritable rather often. So I thought it would be good for us to, right out of the gate, pour over some examples of Jesus' irritability. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you're in an irritable mood right now, and I'm not sure if even describing Jesus as irritable makes you irritable. But we're going to explore uh, just maybe the first third of the Gospel of Luke— all I did was just stop whenever I saw Jesus being irritable, and actually, um, I didn't stop every time. So this is a sampler of the first third of the Gospel of Luke, just to give you kind of a flavor for this side of Jesus. Last week's episode was called The Cursing Jesus, where we explored uh, how and when Jesus used really strong language, and some reactions to that podcast have been basically, well, that can't be Jesus. Um, Jesus was perfect. Jesus n- never t- talked in a profane way. And our uh, assumption and our premise here on the podcast is 
that we let Jesus do the talking. So if Jesus said and did things that don't match our impressions of him, then it's our impression of him that has to change, not Jesus, to fit our impression. So let's explore how often Jesus seemed irritable or annoyed with people, and then we'll explore, well, why was that exactly? Did he just not have enough coffee? I don't know if they had coffee back in 0 AD, but if they had, would Jesus have been less irritable? <laughs> well, let's find out. So starting right off the bat in Luke 4.4, 4, this is the passage where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by, by Satan, and one of the first temptations that the devil gives him is, if you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus tells him, no! Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. I'm putting my little annoying tone of voice on that. But he's, his response back to Satan is irritated and annoyed. No way. Scriptures say people don't live by bread alone. If we flip over to Luke chapter 4, and I'm flipping over here in my Jesus-centered Bible. So if you're in your Jesus-centered Bible, you'd be on page 1072 right now, if you're not driving. Uh, if we flip over in Luke chapter 4, verses 23 through 27... This is uh, Jesus' first public teaching in a synagogue, so this is a big deal. He's opening the, the scrolls for the first time, and it, he's back home, actually. He's starting his ministry where he started out life, and so he's, he's teaching to the townies, I guess you could say. And uh, uh, it starts off in verse 22, "'Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips.'" Uh-oh. <laughs> Up until this point, they're amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they say, well, how can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? So that what they're saying is, how can this guy, who does this guy think he is? I mean, we're all amazed by what he's saying right now. Is he, is he uppity? Is he, is he too big for his, for his britches? Well, who is this guy? Isn't this Joseph's son? We've seen this guy grow up. And then Jesus responds, you'll undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of, of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but only one was healed, whose name was Naaman, a Syrian. Oh, when the people heard this in the synagogue, they were furious. So Jesus was on hyper-irritation, annoyance mode with these folks right from the get-go, and they went from being amazed by his gracious words and, and everyone speaking well of him to everybody being hopping furious in the synagogue because of how he spoke to them. If we flip over again to Luke chapter 5, just starting with verses 22 and, and ending with verse 25, Jesus is here healing a man because he heals this man in a way that the Pharisees and teachers of the law didn't expect. He, he basically said, I can forgive this man or I can heal this man. I think I'm going to forgive him first. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law went, who, who the heck do you think you are anyway? I, the same thread that he had when he opened his teaching in the synagogue, who do you think you are? And 
they accuse him of blasphemy, and here's how Jesus responds to him in verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he goes on and tells the man to pick up his, his mat and go home, this paralyzed man. Jesus' response to them is just irritated. Why, why are you questioning me in your hearts? If we flip over again to Luke chapter 6, Jesus heals a man's hand on the Sabbath, and he challenges the Pharisees for their all of the additional rules they've had about the Sabbath and all of the bizarre, twisted ways they think about the Sabbath. He's challenging them again. So in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 8, he, uh, he goes after them. By the way, that because the Pharisees were watching him closely, they were trying to catch him screwing up so they could really they could really lower the boom on him. And Jesus, it says in verse 8, knew their thoughts. So he said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So first of all, he's like, yeah, I know what you're thinking. Let me make it easy for you. I'm going to have the guy stand right up in front of you, right here. So the man came forward, and Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life? Or destroy it. So nobody answers him, of course, and you can hear the irritation in Jesus' voice. Nobody answers him, and then Jesus just says, stretch out your hand to the man, and the man stretches out his hand, and it's restored. And he does this in sort of a grandstanding way. He's not doing it on the sideline. He's not trying to not offend them. He's irritated with them. And because of his irritation, he says, come on up here in front so these guys can see exactly what I'm about to do on the Sabbath. So that's from Luke chapter 6. A little bit later on in Luke chapter 6, there's a passage where Jesus is teaching about what it means to love your enemies. And he's basically saying you don't get any credit for loving your friends. So in in Luke 6, starting in verse 32, here's what he says. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Again, you can hear Jesus just annoyed with their standard for love, the way that they assess what love is. So he responds in kind of an irritated way to them about that. In Luke chapter 7, here's one of my favorite ones. This is in uh, uh, verses 31 through 32. He's in a public square. Once again, there's a big crowd there, and there's also Pharisees and the, and the, the teachers of religious law, and they're, they're all around there. And the lead into this says, but the Pharisees and experts in religious law had rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. So uh, uh, Jesus is already aware that they had rejected the message of John the Baptist, and refused to be baptized by him because they felt like their righteousness was plenty fine enough for them. So Jesus is hardwired to already be irritated and annoyed with them, and here's what he says. To what can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked? How can I describe them? They're like children playing a game in the public square, and they complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. So here's Jesus basically annoyed with what a whiny generation he's having to deal with here. 
I, I know I added extra whiny to his uh, little stab at them, but he was definitely annoyed with these people. Um, we're going to do a couple more here just to saturate you in irritation here. So in uh, later on in chapter 7 of Luke, it's in uh, verses 44 through 46. Let me skip over there. He's at Simon the Pharisee's house, Jesus is now, and he first tells Simon and the gathered Pharisees a parable about two people who owe different amounts to a creditor. And one was a very large amount, one was a very small one, and both debts were forgiven. And Jesus asked Simon, which one do you think was more grateful? And Simon says, well, of course, the one that had the huge debt. So Jesus is telling this parable because Simon's pretty put off by a, a woman that comes into this gathering when she shouldn't, and Jesus allows uh, her to kiss his feet and put perfume on his feet, and Simon and, and the others there are just scandalized by this, and they're just mumbling to themselves, if this guy knew who this woman was, would he really let her do this? And so Jesus tells this parable, and then after Simon says, well, of course, the person that's most grateful is the one who had the larger debt canceled, uh, Jesus says this, that's right. And then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my head with rare perfume. So here he's complaining to Simon about his treatment as a guest and comparing what this woman has done to what Simon's done. So again, a little annoyed with Simon the Pharisee. Later on in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus is on his way to uh, healing Jairus' daughter, this is an important person in town who's come to Jesus and said, my daughter's sick, will you come heal her? And along the way, as he's going along the way, a woman sneaks up in the crowd and touches the hem of his garment, and he stops and deals with this woman for a while, and by the time that's over, somebody comes to Jairus and says, your daughter died. As you were on your way, she died. And so Jesus basically says, don't worry, I'm still going to go heal her. So in uh, Luke 8, uh, starting in 51 and going to 52, when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except for Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing. And he said, stop your weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. Well, this stunned the weeping crowd, and they actually laughed at him. I can't imagine people who were there to mourn, who were so caught off guard and thought it was so ridiculous what Jesus said that they laughed out loud when there was a little girl lying there dead. But Jesus was obviously irritated with the big show they were putting on with all their weeping and gnashing of teeth over this, so he lashes out at them. And let's do two more quick ones in Luke 9. Uh, the first one starts with verse 37, so let me flip over to that. The next day they had come down the mountain, and a large crowd had met Jesus. And a man in the crowd called out to him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. An evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. 
Well, Jesus said, You faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you and put up with you? And he said to the man, Bring your son here. And uh, the man brings his son forward, and Jesus casts out the demon. So this is a kind of a common uh, response that Jesus has, by the way, when people doubt him or don't trust him or cast aspersions on what he's going to do. And, and in this case, where his disciples weren't able to cast out the Spirit, Jesus just responds with irritation, like, you faithless and corrupt people. I mean, again, we're trying to contrast the common view we have of Jesus as being Mr. Nice Guy, and over and over again, he's saying stuff like this to people. So let's do one last one. This is also in Luke chapter 9, uh, and it starts in, in verse 59. Uh, there were some people along the way that were caught up in the excitement around Jesus, and and some of them were saying, uh, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. And he said to another person, why don't you follow me? And the man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus told him, hey, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. And another said, well, yeah, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus told him, hey, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So there's our little stretch of irritation and annoyance. Clearly, uh, the reason I did so many of these is to give us a kind of a shotgun blast of how often this actually happened, where Jesus had a bit of an edge to him in his response to people. Now, that's just a third of the Gospel of Luke, and just a sampler from that. Uh, we didn't even reference the many, many times Jesus said, some, said to someone, hey, why is your faith so small? He said that to friends and enemies both all the time, and we didn't even get to the time he scattered the money changers in the temple, where he was separating the church from commerce, essentially. That, talk about annoyed, he was hyper-annoyed um, when he scattered the money changers. So, so the question here is, why is Jesus so often seemingly annoyed and irritated with people, and what does that exactly mean for us as we grow closer to him? Well, of course, uh, there are many reasons why we get annoyed. Um, you, you probably have some of your pet annoyances. One of mine, I, I have to say, uh, my, t- my chief annoyances is the way people have uh, a distracted relationship with their smartphone. It really drives me crazy when I'm walking somewhere, and I see somebody just staring at their screen, and they're walking directly at me. Like, usually it's diagonally across the hallway, so they're not even walking straight, and they're about to ram into me, and they don't know it because they're staring at their screen. That just bugs the heck out of me. Distraction bugs the heck out of me. I'm really annoyed by it. There's actually a science to distraction. There's a there's a book out not too long ago by a couple of uh, NPR reporters. The book is called Annoying, The Science of What Bugs Us. So if you want to know the real science behind why you get so annoyed at stuff, pick up a copy of this book, because there are reasons why we are annoyed by things, and a lot of it has to do with dissonance. We don't like dissonance. So one of the examples they give is uh, one of the real uh, top annoyances that people have is overhearing somebody else's cell phone conversation. And it's not just that you're overhearing somebody else's conversation. It turns out that it that really bugs us because whenever we're listening to someone, 
we want to hear both sides of the conversation. We kind of fill in the gaps of what the other person is saying. So when you only hear one side of the conversation, it taps into the tension and dissonance we have of not having the story completed. So it really annoys us. So there's lots of reasons that we're annoyed by things. I think I'm annoyed by distraction because it bothers me when people aren't paying attention in the present moment. It bothers me when people are distracted into another moment and are not present in this moment. So it just annoys me. It's good to explore why exactly was Jesus annoyed and irritated. Um, Obviously, all of the situations I just read are all different, but there's a similar kind of response that Jesus gives back. So, so let's explore that a little bit, and then we'll pursue what, it, what does this actually mean for us in our everyday life. One reason why Jesus could be annoyed and irritated with the people he was encountering is it's really frustrating when you see the truth about something and someone just doesn't get it. Isn't that true? Uh, when we see a truth in their life that would set them free or would give them peace, or help them to uh, grow or be intimate in their relationship with God, and they just can't see it, and we can't make them see it, it can be annoying, because you, you can see freedom just on the other side of that, and yet they can't grasp it. Or it's also true that, that uh, we get annoyed, and maybe Jesus gets annoyed, when there's a lot riding on something— and so your emotions are a lot higher. So in a lot of these encounters, there, there was a lot riding on something. There was a person's whole future, their physical future, their spiritual future, and the, the people that were pushing back against Jesus were pushing back against him like mosquitoes, like irritating him uh, about little things when he was really focused on the big thing. He was focused on setting that person free. And so when there's a lot of riding on this, like, if you can imagine a paralyzed person not being paralyzed anymore, wow, that's huge. And you have people um, complaining that you, uh, because you're doing it on a day you're not supposed to. So when there's a lot riding on something, your emotions can be higher, and that obviously comes through with Jesus. He's accurately responding emotionally to people who are trying to stop him from doing a great good. So He's also very discerning about others' motivations. Uh, We see many, many examples of Jesus paying ridiculous attention to people and discerning what's going on inside of them and what's motivating them. He pays really close attention to people and studies them. So he sees what others are hiding, or maybe even sometimes don't see in themselves, and uh, often uh, Jesus describes himself as light, um, and that there's no darkness in him. He's the light of the world is one of the cliches that we use to describe Jesus. But the thing is, all of us live in darkness, and Jesus brings light into that darkness. Well, we think of light into the darkness in very kind of squishy squishy ways, uh, like this is a touchy-feely kind of light going into the darkness. But actually, if you turn on a flashlight in a totally dark room, it's a shocking burst of light there's something very almost violent about a light suddenly being turned on in the darkness. And when we live in darkness, and he is light, he's always outing our darkness. And that also can feel like a, a, like, like an irritation. If you think of irritation as 
something hard uh, moving into something soft, for instance. So Jesus is light, there's no darkness in him. We live in darkness, so sometimes his annoyance comes from simply unmasking what people are hiding in and putting light into the darkness that, pe- that people are living in. He's also a very relatable person and an authentic person. He's not the standoffish God we so often expect or treat. Like, uh, when people respond, I, I mentioned in last week's episode about how often Jesus used strong language, and some people had a hard time with that because they think of Jesus as perfect, and really underneath that, perfectly nice all the time. The accounts of Jesus just don't back that up. If we're letting Jesus show us what he's really like, it's impossible to think of him as Mr. Nice Guy. But people don't like their preconceived notions of of who Jesus is to be uh, meddled with. But the truth is, he's not a standoffish person. He's very relatable. He's very authentic. And real people get annoyed with each other. (laughs) Real people get irritated in real life because we live in a broken world. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And it's we're supposed to act with annoyance or irritation when something in our soul senses that what's happening is not consistent with the kingdom of God. We're, we're created for another kingdom. We're created to thrive and feel relaxed and released in the beauty of the kingdom of God. And when we have to deal with the brokenness of this world, it naturally produces annoyance and irritation, and uh, no one has had a deeper appreciation, knowledge for, or experience in the kingdom of God than Jesus did. So I can imagine for a person who understood what it was like to live in the beauty of the kingdom of God, the culture of God himself, where beauty and truth were the highest things, where hypocrisy doesn't exist, I, can you imagine what it, what, it, what it must have been like to encounter the broken world and broken people who are so far away from the kingdom of God? On a, uh, can you imagine what that would be like to encounter that on a regular basis? So I like what uh, Steph Hilbery, when we were talking about this episode the other day, um, she said, uh, you know, remember the disciples were a bunch of dudes living with, with each other in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> And if you think about it in that way, what would you expect a group of guys in their 20s and 30s hanging out together, eating, sleeping, traveling together, doing hard things together uh, for three straight years, what would you expect that to be like on a regular basis? There had to be many moments of relational irritation and annoyance, and Jesus is part of that group. He didn't hover over them like an angel. He was embedded with them. So the New Testament writers are always reporting the facts of what Jesus said, but not so much the tone or the context of what he said. He's a relatable, authentic person living his life amidst uh, other relatable, authentic people who are broken, and of course, uh, on occasion, he said things with an edge to those people. But because the New Testament uh, writers don't give us a lot of context as to the tone or, you know, kind of the way that he said those things, we're left to kind of uh, fill in the gaps. So one of the things I love to do is is put a filter on things Jesus says and maybe open up new meaning for the things Jesus says 
by uh, assuming that whatever he was saying, he was saying with a smile on his face. So when we think about some of these annoying, irritating things uh, that Jesus uh, responds back to people, what if he said some of these things with a smile on his face, not a big scowl or uh, you know a wrinkled brow, but what if, what if he said it kind of snarky <laughs> instead of kind of serious? So you know, my in my own family, I have a pretty dry sense of humor, and uh, I I have two daughters, Lucy and Emma. Lucy's almost uh, twenty; uh, she'll turn twenty in a, in a month or so, and my daughter Emma is fifteen. And and I've been married to my wife Bev for uh, twenty eight years, and it, you can divide our family in half: uh, those that get my humor and those that absolutely don't. So Lucy gets my humor, and Emma and my wife Bev often don't, because it's a very dry, snarky sense of humor for the most part. And so often what I get from Bev and Emma is this quizzical look. They're wondering whether I'm actually joking or not when I'm telling a joke. On the other hand, when my daughter Lucy is home from college, she always gets when I'm joking. She has no problem understanding when I'm uh, w- when I'm speaking with dry humor and when I'm not, and so uh, we have a a dog, a Bichon Frise, who's about six years old, named Chloe, who's a a, a little white furball, and um, uh, just because she has no idea what I'm saying, I often say snarky things to Chloe or snarky things about Chloe, just because I enjoy making jokes about her, and I know that she, her self esteem is not being destroyed by the things I say. So I amuse myself by saying snarky things about our dog. Well, my wife and my younger daughter are always dismayed when I say smart, snarky things about the dog because they don't understand that I actually do love the dog, even though she drives me crazy most days. I do love this dog, and she loves me. But because I speak in a kind of a snarky way, it sounds to them like I really hate this dog, because things like that can sound kind of harsh. So uh, in talking to my older daughter, Lucy, her, after her first year of college, one of the things that she pointed out that was true about college life that she kind of half enjoyed and half didn't enjoy was that in her large group of friends that she developed over her freshman year, they had um, exactly what you probably had in college, too, a kind of a running banter where if you screwed up or did something weird or, or uh, funny, you got gone after <laughs> in a snarky way. They would poke fun at you. They would bring it up again at, uh, later that uh, evening when you're having dinner. They would bring up that stupid thing that you did. There's a lot of snarky, dry humor in college life. And one of the things that Lucy said when she came home from school is she recognized that that kind of snarky banter that people have, where they fake their annoyance and irritation with each other— um, uh, if you had if you had wrote out what people said to each other and had to read it in print, you'd say, "Wow, these people seem like they hate each other." But actually, in real practice, it's a form of affection. It's a form of closeness. It's a it's a way that college students make deeper connections with each other. But uh, the truth is, Lucy would get tired of it sometimes. Like she said, I just wish somebody would say something really true and good sometimes, and not always be in snarky mode. But she did understand in an overarching way that this was an affectionate way to communicate and was common with college students. You can probably remember some stories yourself. So what if 
some of Jesus's irritation and annoyance in the ways that he responds to people is less um, serious and more affectionately snarky <laughs> sometimes. I'm not saying all the time, but there are times when he actually built relationship by having a bit of an edge to him in the way he communicated, just the same way that we experience that with our close friends. With our close friends, they often uh, express affection or familiarity or even uh, the safety of the relationship by having a bit of an edge with us that's meant playfully, in a, in a sense. The way that we come to know Jesus in full is by slowing down, paying attention to what he's saying and doing, but also considering the context and the possible tone of voice he might be using. One way that, this, uh, that we can get help with this is to interact with the Spirit of Jesus on a regular basis in our life, on a moment-to-moment basis. Now, this interacting with the Spirit of Jesus is actually a huge deal. In John uh, 15, 16, 17, those three chapters, Jesus is spending a lot of time talking about how great it's going to be when the Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes. And he's essentially saying to his disciples, up until now you've had me uh, sort of as an outside physical presence, but pretty soon it's going to be get so good because you guys are you guys have such a hard time getting me. And pretty soon when I go away, the spirit's going to come and the spirit's going to live in you and he'll teach you everything about me from the inside out. So he he goes to great lengths to tell them how great this is going to be. He makes this a really really big deal that this is going to be a huge tipping point for us relationally. And the reason he's making such a big deal out of this is he's saying, in the future, you'll have an every-moment conversational relationship with me that isn't tied to the book, to the scrolls, it isn't uh, tied to what you've written about that I've spoken and done in my three-year ministry, it'll be active and alive and moment-to-moment. Well, that is our reality. This is the reality that we live in now. And that means that we can experience Jesus on an everyday basis and, uh, and uh, assess for ourselves the kinds of ways that he likes to communicate. I have to say, there are many times where Jesus—I uh, guess there's no other way to say it—is a little snarky with me. I think, I think I've told the story on a past podcast after I published my second book, for a wider Christian audience, and it was apparent that out of the gate that that book was not going to meet the expectations I had for uh, how uh, you know how many people would read it and 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 all that. And I was really discouraged, and so I went on a walk with with Jesus around my neighborhood, and I kind of raised my fist to him and said, "I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not gonna. This is too hard to do, and to not see any fruit from it." And I, I kind of had a toddler. Uh, temper tantrum with him. And, it, and after I was done kind of venting my emotions, in the gap that followed, you know, I, th- there was kind of this pregnant pause, and I felt like Jesus said back to me something like, are you done yet? <laughs> and then he said, well, that's kind of cute that you're going to quit being an author, because actually, Rick, that's up to me. I understand you don't think you'll continue to write books because you have to sell books in order to write more books, but why are you worried about that? That's my problem, not yours. So why don't you just do what I what I want you to do? That's essentially what Jesus told me. The whole interchange was snarky, but it was affectionate. 
You could say that he was irritated with me, but that's not how I experienced it. It was a kind of familiar edge that he was giving me, and it really went right to my core, went right to my heart. So the only way that I experienced Jesus that way is I didn't go to the Bible and start reading when I was on my walk. I opened up a conversation with the Spirit while I was on that walk, and I experienced Jesus's tone and context and how he responded to me. And even though if I wrote down what he said to me, it could sound really irritated and annoyed, it actually was quite tender because of the familiar way that he communicated with me. So is it you know, dangerous to say that our experience of Jesus is broader than the Bible? Well, I'll give you a little teaser here. Um, in the fall, uh, we're going to post an interview I recently did with John Eldridge, who wrote Wild at Heart and Captivating with his wife Stacy and Waking the Dead and Journey of Desire and Sacred Romance with his friend Brent Curtis. I have tremendous respect for John Eldridge as a writer and as a as a prophet, really, in our Christian culture. And and uh, we were talking, uh, you'll hear it in September, we were talking about discipleship and what it really means. And John Eldridge said, well, the, the, the primary thing about discipleship is developing a, a more relaxed conversational relationship with Jesus. He said that is, that is the foundation for everything. And a lot of our conversation then was about, well, why don't more people have that? Um, why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a roadblock for so many people? And I, I really resonated with what John Eldridge was saying, that in order for us to really know the personality and character of Jesus, of course we pour ourselves into paying ridiculous attention to the accounts of Jesus in the New Testament. But Jesus himself said, well, that's not where our relationship stops. There's actually this whole vast iceberg of relationship under the surface of that that I want you to explore, and the way you'll be able to do that is with the Spirit. So in Galatians chapter 3, um, early on in Galatians chapter 3, in the message version of that, of that letter from Paul to the Christians at Galatia, it says that God is generous with his presence in our lives. Let me just read to you how Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases this. Here's his paraphrase of Paul speaking to the Galatians. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin with, then how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It's not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. So answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? Did you catch that, uh, like, toward the tail end of what Paul's saying? He's getting pretty worked up and irritated himself here. He says, does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you never could do for yourselves, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? So he's saying, essentially, that 
The greatest gift God gives us is his own presence through his Holy Spirit. And the way that we discern the tone and context of how Jesus relates with people is hugely through the experience we have in relating to him through his Spirit. And when you relate to Jesus on an every-moment, every-day basis through the Spirit, learn to have a conversational relationship with him. Stop to ask him questions, to, to seek feedback. Um, you, you start to get a better picture of who he really is in the pages of the Bible. You start to get a sense of his smell and his tone and everything about him, and it adds some context into these interactions that you read about in the Bible. You begin to understand what a full person he is. So think about the most enjoyable person in your life. What is the range of that person's emotional breadth? Think about this for a second. Steph Hilbery and I were talking about this the other day. She was talking about a person she had to meet in some kind of official capacity. Oh, I think it was a surgeon. Her husband fell and broke his shoulder, and so they had to meet with a surgeon. And she said this surgeon was just had a flat personality and a flat affect as he talked to them, kind of a dead-eyed person. And she said it was really off-putting. Um, and you know, she basically said, "I hope he's a really good surgeon because he's not very good, you know, relationally." And we've all met people like this who just have a very narrow, flat emotional range. The, those are people that we don't really seek out. We don't love hanging out with those people. The people we enjoy most hanging out with have a very broad emotional range. There's a breadth to their emotions. And this is certainly true with Jesus. So yes, he is irritated and annoyed with people on occasion, but the truth is we're going to be spending um, eternity with him, enjoying him forever. And there's no way that you can enjoy someone forever who has a flat, narrow emotional range. Jesus doesn't. He brings in the all of the emotional range into this. And we know this is true because his disciples decided to go all in with him, even though they didn't understand a lot of what he was teaching or saying. They were drawn to him magnetically because of the breadth of his personality, the breadth of his emotional range. So we also know that a lot of women in this patriarchal society that we're talking about here made huge risks to be with him. There's, there was something about his presence that allowed them to take great risks to be with him. And uh, I know from living in a household full of females, including every single pet we have, that um, women are not drawn to harsh, hard-edged people. There's a tenderness that's intrinsic to the, the, the female heart that is not drawn to harshness. And, and so if we translate Jesus' annoyance and irritability into harshness on its own sake, it belies the fact that so many women were drawn to be in his presence that, and took great risks to be in his presence. His personality gave them permission, I think. that Inside, they, they, they said to themselves, I think I can trust this guy because of the way that he related to people, including his sometimes snarky, sometimes annoyed, sometimes irritable way of responding to people who either betrayed uh, their, their own low level of faith or were outwardly hypocritical or damaging to others. So, in the end, the reason why Jesus 
I think irritated a lot of people, especially those people in authority, is that those authority leaders, those religious leaders, expect, expected to be treated deferentially. Um, and in fact, most people that they ever met did treat them that way. Whether it was true or not, whether they really meant it or not, didn't matter. They treated authority and religious leadership with deference, and Jesus just didn't. <laughs> he represented a higher authority than the highest authority people already knew. And when people saw Jesus responding to religious leaders and authorities the way that he did, they got a sense from him that he was actually a higher authority than the, than the one religious authority they were familiar with. They started to get a taste that there was something higher and, and better and gooder and, and more beautiful. So, to wrap up, how do we uh, how do we translate all this into our everyday life? What difference does it make that the fact that Jesus often was annoyed or irritated, whether or not he was snarky and affectionate with it or totally dead serious, what does this mean in our everyday life? I think one thing it can invite us into is to have a more authentic relationship with him, not a churchified kind of relationship with him where we use all of our typical church cliches or our church patterns of praying or our church ways of interacting with him, it can be an invitation to relate to him in a more authentic way. So one way I think that would help, and it has certainly helped me, is to spend some time in the Psalms. And I'm going to suggest that you particularly spend time in the Psalms 1 through 41. Those are the first 40-ish psalms that King David wrote. And David was enjoyably authentic in his relationship with God. He was—talk about emotional breadth. King David had that. And those first 41 psalms are a record of someone having a a direct conversation with God who is authentic themselves and expecting an authentic God to respond to them. So if you spend time every day— or every time you crack open a Bible, um, if you decided, you know what, I'm going to read at least a portion of a psalm between Psalm 1 and 41 every day or every time I crack open a Bible, just to get used to the feeling of having an authentic conversation with Jesus in my life, because David certainly did, familiarize yourself, normalize yourself with the way David talked to God. Get used to the way he does it and the freedom that he exercises in every conversation he has with God. Let that become your new norm, so it can release you into a more um, honest, authentic way of communicating with Jesus in your everyday life. Let it free you from the churchy structures that you've been raised to follow, and the churchy boundaries you've been raised to keep track of. Um, Let David help you expand those boundaries and give you permission to have a better, more raw conversation with Jesus, because we know he can handle it because he himself is a master of the raw conversation. So if he is free enough to be annoyed and irritated with both his enemies and his friends, then he's also inviting us to be free enough to be annoyed and irritated with him, the way David was in the Psalms. So there's one thing that you can do. Sample a, sample a psalm from 1 to 41 uh, often to normalize this kind of relationship. And here's one more thing. Take heed of the message of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 11. I, he tells a little parable when he's trying to teach his 
disciples how to pray. I've talked about this little parable before, and actually I'm going to be doing a whole message on this at my church later in July. I'm calling it Three Loaves of Bread. It's a little parable when he he talks about... uh, well, let me just tell you some of it to close off here. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight. Oh, man, alive. Way late at night, way past bedtime, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And you say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door's locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. So this guy's irritated. The master of the house is irritated at being woken up at midnight and his friend asking him for three loaves of bread. He's annoyed by this. And then Jesus continues, But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. I just love this little parable. Because basically Jesus is saying, Even if I come off annoyed and irritated with you, keep coming at me. It's an invitation to us to have a more relaxed and normal and, you might say, human relationship with Jesus. In in this little parable, he is the annoyed master who's been in bed for a long time when at midnight his friend knocks on the door. He is that master. He's the one responding with, I'm not going to get up. And even Jesus says, I'm, I tell you the truth, even if you won't do it for friendship's sake, if you just keep knocking on the door with your persistence, he's going to come down and give you the three loaves of bread. He's basically saying, have the freedom to relate to me that way. Keep knocking. Even if I seem irritated, you get irritated back. <laughs> you, with your persistence, keep knocking. So that, that's maybe a visual that you can keep in the back of your mind to keep knocking, that Jesus' irritation and annoyance is an actual invitation for you to have something more real in your relationship with him. So there you have it. Thanks for listening, gang. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on our website, PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You just need to find our podcast section and Season 3, Episode 26. Hey, and don't forget, please go out and get a copy of Spiritual Grit or uh, The Unreasonable Jesus that I mentioned before. These two books are perfect for summer book clubs, by the way. So if you want to start a little summer book club, Spiritual Grit has seven chapters— that includes the the uh, introduction. So uh, if you just do a, a, a chapter every time you meet, that's a six or seven uh, meeting summer book club. Uh, uh, Unreasonable Jesus is the same way. They're, they're, in Unreasonable Jesus, they're very short, uh, biteable chapters. So go out and get a copy of either one, one of these and, and, and encourage your book club to all get a copy of these and then use them for your summer book club. Again, this is uh, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 